Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab, a New Books Network partnership, provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Christian Anderson, Associate Professor in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington at Bothell. We'll be talking about his book, Urbanism Without Guarantees, the Everyday Life of a Gentrifying West Side Neighborhood, published in 2020 by the University of Minnesota Press. So thank you very much, Christian, for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm super excited about this uh, chance to connect and share my work. We're also very excited to hear about your work. Um, but before we delve into the book, we have a little bit of commotion at the New Books Network where we like to get to know our authors a little bit better. So especially since you're based in an interdisciplinary department, I'm curious about your background across multiple disciplines and how it led you to conceive of this book. Yeah, that's a sounds like a great place to start. I've... I've heard it said that uh, a lot of people's academic books are actually autobiographical, uh, maybe just in ways that aren't totally obvious. So uh, I think that's true enough, and 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 that's a that's a good place to start. So I don't know how much detail you want, but in terms of biography, I, I guess I could start with where I'm from. So I was born and raised in uh, an entering suburb of Minneapolis in Minnesota, uh, in a place that. Uh, once I got a little older and had some chances to travel to places outside of uh, that spot, I started to understand was a pretty particular and I guess I would say specifically Midwestern American sort of second half of the 20th century kind of space and time. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in U.S. suburbs, but um, they have their own peculiar cultures uh, that are really embedded in the specific 
places. So um, some of my first critical questions were kind of about uh, what was going on in, in, in a space like that, sort of about why do we have these kinds of cultures and spaces and modes of life here instead of different kinds of cultures and modes of life? Uh, how is it that ordinary life in places like this can come to seem and feel sort of really natural and inevitable uh, and almost taken for granted, even though if you sort of stop to think about it, uh, so many of the things there are, are fabricated, or I started to think about them as like, things things are made up. Who gets to make these things up? How does that work? Uh, and how is that connected to sort of bigger sweeps of history and human development and experience? What kinds of different futures might be possible given all that? So those were like, I don't know, maybe they were angsty teenage questions at one point, And then I just kind of held on to them over the years and, and kept trying to find people who were um, uh, smart and, and could speak to those kinds of things. Um, and I guess that's how you end up uh, being an academic and an ethnographer on that meandering path. So um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Minnesota, and um, I actually made up my own degree uh, through this yeah, it was cool. They have this program called, I think it was called Interdisciplinary Interdepartmental Major. And you had to find like three faculty members who would sign off on uh, basically a program and a list of courses. And there was a capstone project. And um, I put together a combination of uh, urban studies, cultural studies, history, a little sociology. And I was lucky enough to have some faculty members who... Um, uh, were able to kind of uh, support me in thinking about uh, place-based research and ethnography and, and some of the questions I was into and channel my angst in more productive directions. Uh, and then uh, I worked a number of years as a actually a, a child care provider after my undergraduate degree, uh, which was super interesting for kind of getting into the everyday life of, of, of the city in Minneapolis and the place where I lived. Uh, then I did a master's degree and I took a chance and, and moved to London uh, and went to this program at um, Goldsmiths at the University of London that was called uh, the Masters in Culture, Globalization and the City. And I guess it was technically sociology, but there was a bunch of anthropologists there. Um, Paul Gilroy had just recently been on the faculty. So there was a, a like a, a big infusion of British cultural studies and kind of thinking through questions of uh, globalization and hybridity and um, cultural politics in really interesting ways. And there, there were a couple of people that I learned a lot from there. My, my advisor was this uh, guy called Michael Keith, who did really fantastic uh, work um, uh, around sort of urban cultural geographies and policy. And then there was an ethnographer named Les Back um, who uh, really modeled a lot of kind of humility and, and ways to do ethnography that I, I still think about a lot. And at that point, I thought I was a sociologist. And they told me, mm, you know, for, for U.S. sociology, you might be more of a geographer or an anthropologist. So I started to look at different programs and they pointed me to the CUNY Graduate Center uh, in New York, where there was a, a, a group of people who were doing really interesting things who also had toes in other disciplines. So uh, my dissertation advisor was Cindy Katz, uh, who does a lot of work in uh, feminist geography, but also American studies and environmental psychology. Um, Mariana Pavlovskaya, 
uh, was a great mentor. Um, and she sort of straddles geography and um, diverse economies. Um, uh, a bunch of other folks there. Um, uh, Vinay Gidwani uh, was there for a while. Uh, this anthropologist named Jeff Maskowski, and then um, David Harvey and Neil Smith and, and Ruthie Gilmore and all these sort of amazing thinkers. So um, in the end, I had a lot of the same questions that I had always had, but now sort of shaped by those sensibilities. And that that's kind of how I got into the book, uh, was thinking about some of those same questions, now looking for uh, a kind of place-based uh, uh, ethnographic way to get at some of those things. And um, that's how I ended up uh, in the space where I ended up and, and sort of thinking about uh, these questions in the setting that I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it really helps to um, hear more about sort of your journey through places as well. Um, and yeah, so like journey through places as well and not just disciplines. Uh, it it's, seems it's like yeah. a sensibility that really guides your work. Uh, and, you know, it seems like you ended up in New York and your book is about a New York neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping you could orient us to Hell's Kitchen, especially for our listeners who might not be familiar with this specific neighborhood. What led you to Hell's Kitchen and what about this neighborhood in particular illuminated your thinking on these longstanding questions? Yeah, great question. Uh, I mean, and, and in the book, the space of the neighborhood is almost like a kind of character or a, mm. a, like an interlocutor in itself. So um, I, this is a great question and a, and a good way to get into the book. So just to situate, um, if we're thinking about Manhattan, the sort of Hell's Kitchen, or some people call it uh, Clinton too, the, the name is uh, contested. I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, is So if, if you're thinking about Manhattan, it's on the, the far west side of the middle of Manhattan, sort of so north of 42nd Street, uh, south of Columbus Circle and, and the Lincoln Center area. Uh, a couple blocks to the west of Times Square and the, the Broadway Theater District and then bordered by the, the Hudson River uh, and New Jersey to the west. So um, uh, sort of right smack in the middle of Manhattan, but, you know, interesting for being uh, right, right smack in the middle of things. So um, in terms of what led me there before I started uh, uh, doctoral work, uh, when I first moved to New York from London in 2005, I, uh, I had a job uh, in a, a building that was right next to the Port Authority bus terminal on 42nd Street. <laughs> okay. Uh, and <laughs> it was, uh, I was in AmeriCorps Vista, which is like kind of like a domestic Peace Corps. And you, I got paid, I think I got paid like $15,000 and I got a free Metro card or something like that. So it was like Eight amenities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, it was like, uh, there was a lot of flexibility and time built into yeah. the job. So I spent a lot of time on, on breaks, like wandering around the neighborhood and, and the job was in this uh, skyscraper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're on like the 36th floor or something like that. So I spent a lot of time like staring out the window down into this space in the new city that I had just moved to, kind of imagining all the intriguing stuff that was going on that I couldn't see. And then going down and walking around the streets and, and you know, kind of uh, getting to know the neighborhood. And um, 
it just it struck me as a fascinating place, partly because of its proximity to all those really iconic spaces that are so close to it and that are world famous. But then if you walk through parts of the neighborhood, it's it's actually pretty feels pretty surprisingly off the beaten path in some places. And, um, you know, the, the rhythms of everyday life there were, were really fascinating to me. So when I got into the program at CUNY the next year and I started to think about doing uh, a place-based ethnographic project, uh, I revisited it and dug into some of the history of the space and, and found it even more intriguing for all that history, um, which I also talk about quite a bit in the book. But there's this sort of way in which the neighborhood's kind of like I don't know what the right metaphor is, but it's sort of like a, a crossroads. Maybe it's a depot. I've heard people refer to it as a, a backstage. I also kind of think about it as a bellwether for a lot of kinds of questions and issues in U.S. urbanization at different times. So, you know, when it industrializes in, in the mid-1800s, it's really connected to the Erie Canal and the railroad and, you um, uh, there's a lot of issues around sort of unregulated industrialization and and tenement housing for immigrant populations and workers. And you have dock, uh, dock workers there who are on the piers up and down the Hudson. Um, so there's this sort of rough and tumble reputation that develops there, uh, which later on uh, becomes a, a topic of interest for social workers and people who are like like some of the people who are influential in the New Deal. Uh, cut their teeth in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood, sort of thinking about the intractable social problems of U.S. cities and how you would deal with them. A little later, you have the kind of tensions that show up in like West Side Story uh, around uh, incoming immigration and thinking about different interethnic tension. And then a little later, you have in sort of the 70s, 80s and 90s, it's really an epicenter of the urban crisis and, and things like broken windows, policing, law and order policing, um, business improvement districts are sort of piloted there in ways that end up having a ripple effect to all these bigger spaces. So um, all that to say, there's a lot of intrigue going on there and a lot that uh, I felt like I could dig into. So, um, you know, when when it came time to, to think about a project, um, I, I dug in and it, it did not disappoint. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, as we discussed a little bit before this conversation, I currently live in this neighborhood and I recently moved. And yeah, it was wonderful to learn more um, through your book because it's also, you know, I feel like Midtown is a space that many people characterize as a place without characteristics. Hmm. But yeah. that's not... You know, like, as you mentioned, like, when you, you know, don't look from above and sort of go onto the ground, you see that it is actually a space with a lot of character uh, and really emblematic of a lot of broader trends like you brought up. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It doesn't get the the cred of the, you know, the other places in New York, but um, there's a yeah. lot going on there. And it's yeah, definitely. And that. it's not I feel like it's not also like the number one place that people want to talk about uh, when it comes to debates on gentrification. So I'm really glad that's where um, you chose to focus on. Um, and yeah, let's let's go into a little bit into the book and how you organized it. 
So, you know, we talked a little bit about your um, background and how you went to the pure toes and to all these um, different modes of thinking. And what really struck me about the book was how, you know, the ethnographic chapters follow chapters that make parallax arguments, as you call them. So, you know, there's quite a bit of theoretical heft that's then followed by the ethnography. And I was wondering if you could speak to uh, why you organize the books that way and what kinds of sort of analytical work do you hope that parallax arguments do in the book? Yeah, uh, I really appreciate this question because I spent a lot of time sort of struggling with uh, what the, you know, how I should organize the book and the chapters and, and the stories and the, the theory compared to the ethnography. And I've, I've never felt quite sure that I made a good choice. So <laughs> if nothing else, it's good to, to at least explain the logic a little more. Um, so I appreciate the question. Um, so, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like, um, the way that I frame the book is as a kind of, uh, I guess I would say like an unsettling or uh, an attempt to think about some sort of contemporary urban questions, uh, in particular questions about uh, the intersections sort of between value, unwaged and social reproductive labor, gentrification, policing, formations of power from uh, a different perspective than they might be typically approached in, in a lot of urban theory and especially urban geography, urban political economy. Um, so that's really what that parallax framing is all about. And what that, what that term is sort of doing in the book is, is trying to think through some of those intersections and questions in a way that takes sort of well-established concepts, theories, thinkers. So for example, I spent time talking about um, Neil Smith's work on rent gaps and, and revanchism. Uh, debates about the urban questions, sort of going back to uh, the 60s, uh, uptakes of uh, Lefebvre on uh, sort of space and everyday life, and, and ultimately a lot of questions around place-based formations of value and sort of big questions in political economy. So sort of taking those debates and concepts and uh, injecting them with elements of, of different thinkers who have not typically been in those debates or considerations that have not been uh, super front and center in those debates to try and open up those concepts uh, in different and hopefully generative ways. So that's sort of the what the parallax uh, arguments do. But I should say, I did not set out to try and write a theoretical book. Originally, when I imagined the book, I was like, oh, it's going to be an ethnography. There's this, you know, really interesting space and all these fascinating people that I spent a lot of time with. I have all this ethnographic data and I thought I was going to be able to just sort of tell that story. Um, but then uh, a lot of the theoretical stuff sort of emerged from the ethnography and sort of the sense that the, the shapes of their lives and the things that were going on and a lot of the questions I was interested in um, kind of uh, were a lot messier than the theoretical frameworks that I felt like I had to work with. So I ended up feeling like I had to do all this theoretical work to be able to actually sort of understand and address what I was seeing in the ethnography. So like, I would say the ethnography drove the theory uh, rather than, than setting out to write a theoretical book. I had a lot of apprehension around the theory and a lot more fun with the ethnography, uh, mm -hmm. I have to say. 
Yeah, so. but it's yeah, one can really see that like all these theoretical or parallax arguments have emerged from the ethnography and I found um I don't know, you to be courageous in a way to really foreground that and I found that really helpful. That's um, very kind. Cur- of cur- course, of course. Um <laughs> and you know, one of the most compelling concepts that you bring forward actually gives the book its name urbanism without guarantees and it's really a concept that does this work of messiness that you just mentioned so i was hoping you could tell us what this concept entails and what is at stake in undoing the guarantees we take for granted in urbanism yeah that's a great question Again, uh, and it's the title <laughs> concept, right? So I hope I can do a, a pretty good job at, at explaining it. So, you know, I guess I would say, uh, again, getting back to, to some of the things I've already started to hint at, um, as I was doing the work, there was this real tension between what I was seeing in the everyday lives uh, of the people that I was um spending time with and the, the sort of predominant ways that urban theory has to explain, uh, particularly formations around things like, um, you know, uh, gentrification, uh, the way that value works in urban space, questions around sort of power and policing. Um, so for example, you know, like one of the people that I spent a lot of time with was this character named Wadi. Uh, who's sort of like a, a, a central figure in the book and, and probably the person I spent the most time with. And, and he was like a really deeply contradictory person in ways that, uh, you know, sort of threw me for a loop in terms of how you make sense of this uh, theoretically. He, so he lived in a limited equity co-op that he helped to found in the 1970s. And he was on the board of like tenant organizing organizations and had a reputation in the neighborhood as being this kind of public character and figure who uh, sort of was a, a steward and a caretaker for the neighborhood. And he sort of viewed himself as progressive, supported all kinds of progressive causes. But at the same time, he was very pro-surveillance, very pro-policing. He did a lot of things that seemed like they would potentially directly contribute to kinds of like quality of life policing in the neighborhood. Um I have this concept in the book that I talk about uh, that I think of as spatial labor. So like the way that people's everyday kinds of activities and undertakings um, sort of change the space and do things in a way that aggregates up to some of these bigger formations and and can feed into them. So he would do things like, uh, you know, pick up litter and remove graffiti and uh, monitor the kinds of flyers that were up in different places and sort of keep eyes on the street, Jane Jacobs style. Um, so he was this really contradictory character. And so one of the questions was, you know, how do we explain, uh, contradictory characters like Wadi? And he wasn't the only one. There were a ton of people who were engaged in these kind of activities and doing these kind of things. So that concept of kind of without guarantees is, is sort of a way of, of thinking about, uh, you know, how do we think about aspects of everyday life and experience and common sense, and different forms of value and things that are more nuanced that sometimes get a little bit crushed in the dominant, largely sort of uh, political economy, exchange value and class-based ways uh, of understanding urban space. 
uh, the production of urban space, things like gentrification. So that's where we get the sort of without guarantees and what that's trying to get at. And, and it, it has a few different meanings. So it's first and foremost, a riff on sort of Stuart Hall's arguments about uh, Marxism without guarantees, um, where he sort of argues, uh, particularly in relation to formations of, of right-wing populism, that you can't assume certain kinds of outcomes or political affiliations just based on class. You have to think about common sense. You have to think about ideology, culture, everyday life, uh, and all these strange and bizarre mutations and combinations that can emerge, uh, you know, despite hoping that like a, just, you know, the right class cred will guarantee good politics. Uh, definitely not necessarily the case. So that's one sense without guarantees, kind of that Stuart Hall sense. Um, but a second sense is like, you know, the way that urban life often feels to a lot of people who are living in it. And I don't know if, I mean, I think we all maybe relate to this during COVID, but like, I don't know about you, but me in my day-to-day life, it often feels like a blur and like things are like up for grabs and uncertain. And I'm not always clear on why I'm making the decisions I'm making or doing the things I'm doing or what it's all going to add up to. And so there's this way that I think uh, you know, everyday life often feels that way to people who are living it. Uh, and that sense of living without guarantees can influence the way people feel about things like policing or um, different changes that are happening in their neighborhood. Or, you know, when we were talking earlier, you talked about like the 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 process of getting into your building and the way that people are really concerned about certain things and not others. Uh, I feel like a lot of that gets back to this sense of like the feeling of living without guarantees. Um, so that's sort of uh, another meaning. And then finally, um, you know, and, and this is kind of a nerdy thing, but I, I end the book thinking about kind of how this notion of without guarantees is is a statement about how we might differently understand sort of circulations of value and and, and durable social forms uh, that people's energies and activities sort of add up to. Um, and it's a reminder that we can't really assume that people's, uh, you know, sort of activities or what I call spatial labor is necessarily going to result in any one durable form for better or for worse, um, which really should be like an incitement or a, a, a reason for us to think about organizing, to think about the possibilities that are always open, whether it's to try and realize the kind of world we, we, we want to live in or to, to, you know, push back on things that seem to be coming into view that um, maybe we didn't see coming, but that, that point towards um, really catastrophic futures, uh, which are, are not hard to imagine. Uh, at this point, and even more so than when I finished writing the book, I would say. Yeah, this is really insightful. Um, and, you know, I I particularly liked your, you know, provocation about contradictory characters or characters that seem contradictory to us. And I feel like that's such a, you know, important methodological intervention in a way that you know, that kind of focus can really open up these amorphous possibilities. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. Um, and you mentioned, you know, how a neighborhood feels. And my next question is about everyday practice and performance. Mm-hmm. So another very, con- very useful concept, in my view, is performative infrastructure. 
uh, through which you show us that value is constantly made and remade by people living their everyday lives in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, so what does performative infrastructure allow us to see about value and gentrification? Yeah, uh, another great question. Your your <laughs> listeners are probably getting this, the the impression that I, I pack a lot of concepts into the book. And that's kind of true. I have like, the people who are like, what is this book about? And I'd be like, well, there are like four or five concepts that I try to develop and, and pack into the book. And, and performative infrastructure is kind of like, I don't know, I would say it's like the hinge concept that brings a lot of the sort of theoretical aspects of the book together. So um, uh, I appreciate the question. So, you know, I, I've started to, to hint at some of this in my previous answers, but um, I mentioned this sort of category of labor that I sort of think about as spatial labor. Um, and that sort of draws directly on uh, a lot of insights from uh, diverse economies literature. So um, just for, for your listeners' information, the book was published in the Diverse Economies in Livable World series uh, at uh, Minnesota, which is edited by sort of J.K. Gibson Graham and people from the Community Economies Collective. So there's a there's a healthy dose of that kind of the kind of sensibility that they bring about trying to see things from different perspectives than just capitalist dominance and try and understand where the wiggle room is from there. So, so that kind of thinking really informs um, the the idea of performative infrastructure, um, and they think about uh, a lot of like. Uh, you know, thinking about theorizing as a kind of performativity uh, and sort of community economies activities as as a kind of performativity towards different kinds of worlds. Um, so that's one huge influence. And then another would be sort of feminist and post-colonial economy um, and uh, a lot of the insights that, that come from, from those spaces. So essentially the argument around spatial labor is that there's this category of labor that's largely unwaged and mostly voluntary that people are undertaking in places where they live in order to sort of change or improve the qualities of that place. Uh, and that those sort of factor into use values, uh, in ways that can aggregate into bigger political economic formations in, in different ways. And so that sort of dovetails into the performative infrastructure argument, um, because, uh, that's starting to think about, uh, the sort of, I don't know if you want to call it the the motivations or sort of like the the ideological, the cultural, the sort of common sense aspects of that underwrite why people are doing what they're doing. And so there I'm drawing on uh, a lot of work from from urbanists from uh, I, I would call it uh, majority world urbanisms. But in, in one of your papers that I read, you call it uh, most of the world urbanisms. Um who think quite a bit about how people's labor may or may not get enrolled into things like processes of development or capitalist value making. So um, as I know you do in some of your work too, I draw really closely on people like um, Abdul Malik Simone. Um, I'm also drawing on the, the work of Lauren Berlant uh, in relation to infrastructure. And, and those are people who are trying to think through questions about adaptation and habituated practice and, and affect in relation to infrastructure in, in really interesting ways. Um, also drawing on sort of Stuart Holligan and Sylvia Winter. Um, but, you know, the argument here is really that there's like these particular kinds of abstractions or ideas, sort of narrative stories, traditions, forms of common sense 
that become embedded in place and habituated and, and sort of carried forward in practice and in, in everyday life and sort of crystallized into the muscle memory uh, of the way people live their lives in different spaces. And people channel that towards different kinds of outcomes. So, you know, in the book, one example that I spend a lot of time talking about too is the local block association and how concerned they are with things like uh, quality of life, safety and security, uh, improvement, sort of this idea of doing all this work for sort of the public good and public safety. Uh, and so the argument is, you know, there's a kind of way of thinking about those things as performative infrastructures that are modes of thought that are embedded and sort of uh, inseparable from everyday routine that carry forward these corpuses of activity and labor that then factor into these values in ways that may or may not get sucked into formations of dominance, or that could be a wellspring for, for sort of different ways of thinking about different kinds of futures. So like I said, it's sort of the hinge between all these different kinds of concepts. Uh, and I spend a lot of time trying to unpack some of that stuff in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I think it's very helpful to think about this as a hinge. Um, and I really appreciate how you draw attention to these sort of common sensibilities or contested notions of, you know, what is for the public goods and what kinds of futures they can create. Uh, and my next question is about this. So I want to invite you to think with us about the precarity embedded in these, you know, commonalities or shared sensibilities. And, you know, I'm often in my work really interested in how, you know, what is shared can be um, not so rosy and how it can get complicated and what we lose when we take that for granted. So I'm wondering, what does a focus on shared or common urban sensibilities conceal and reveal for you in your book? Yeah, yeah. So common sense, I've, I've probably said it a dozen times already in this interview. So it's a it's a huge part of what's going on with all this. And, and again, a lot of that comes from, you know, sort, sort of Stuart Hall and British Cultural Studies who are drawing heavily on Gramsci. So um, that's sort of the background. But I don't know, I sort of think about common sense as, uh, you know, one of the things I often try to talk about with students is that, that Marx riff that like people make history, but not under conditions of their own choosing. And part of those conditions are common sensibilities and traditions that are maybe inherited from, and here you can hear my like angsty teenager coming out of here, like, what is with this set of common sensibilities that I have inherited in the place where I was born? Uh, inherited from the past in ways that are, are um, you know, socially produced, but that can seem really durable. So there's this, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the, the thinking about precarity there. So there's a kind of durability, but there's also a, a way that things always could be made differently. Uh, again, 
for, for better, but possibly for worse. Um, that's sort of front and center in, in, in how I'm trying to think about a lot of this stuff that was going on in this neighborhood. So, uh, again, I had a lot of questions about how, how common sense plays a role in these, these broader formations. And I have yet another term <laughs> that I, that sort of comes in at the end of the ethnography, uh, where I talk about precarious hegemony which is this sort of double sense of precarity. So there's like when we were talking about that without guarantees and how everyday life often feels, uh, particularly in, you know, busy cities, there's this sense of like the, the precarity felt and experienced by people living in uncertain times and in, um, you know, spaces where there might be a lot of perceived crisis, uh, if not just the sort of instability and the scrum of everyday life. Uh, and, you know, in this neighborhood, there was this long legacy of, uh, you know, having lived through the kind of urban crises of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And and a lot of people in the Block Association and the sort of old timers, as, as people refer to them in the neighborhood, still carried with them this sense that they needed to, like, ward off uh, the crisis from coming back. And if they weren't vigilant, like it would bubble up out of the sidewalk and all of a sudden, you know, like the, the crack epidemic would re-explode and uh, graffiti would be everywhere. And, you know, like you would go back to the conditions that were in the neighborhood in the seventies. So there was this real sense of like the precarity of everyday life as potentially being vulnerable to uh, regression or erosion, um, which was, you know, very legitimate given the history of the neighborhood. People were worried that it could be abandoned by capital or the forces of progress or whatever. So they wanted to like hold those things dear. So that's sort of one sense of the precarity. But then there's another sense where like, you know, I, people like Wadi and, and a lot of folks, when you talk to them, they were not ideologically wedded to uh, things like racialized policing and gentrification. If you, if you put it to them, they would maybe say, I do not support those things. I I am maybe even against those things, uh, but I find my actions sort of contributing to those things in ways that I am maybe uncomfortable with, and but that I'm not quite sure what to do about. So another sense of the precarity is like, you know, that a lot of the dominant formations that we have are actually contingent on... I don't know, maybe consent is too strong of a word, but like the continued action of people who are not necessarily even wedded to or for those things. So there is a way that you could think about precarity in terms of, you know, wiggle room or potential for organizing in that space if people are seeking out other possibilities for their lives, but have trouble imagining it or, or realizing those things in the kind of blur of everyday life, which I mean, maybe again, this is biographical, but I totally feel that way. A lot of times, like my everyday life makes it really hard for me to live up to my best, uh, imagination of myself. Cause I often just feel like I don't have the time or bandwidth to like see my commitments through as well as I would like to. And so there's a sense of like the precarity of it all in that, that I'm trying to unpack and, and think about as a space for, for, for organizing and wiggle room. And I'll just add, you know, like the conclusion is that, you know, it might sound too simple, but one of the one of the most powerful ways of thinking about social change and, and sort of the pursuit of uh, a more just future might be to think about uh, mitigating precarity 
in all its forms mm-hmm. to the greatest extent possible and figuring out collective and cooperative ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, as a strategy. Yeah. That's, that's really, really helpful. And um, I want to circle back to how you came to these important contributions and very helpful concepts. Um, and, you know, like, Throughout our conversation, you have given us hints about your ethnographic work or your specific interactions with community members. But I was wondering if you could tell us about the process of fieldwork in general. Um, so what are some methods that proved to be helpful or challenging as you conducted fieldwork? Yeah, methods. I like it. <laughs> it's where the rubber really hits the road, right? You can have all these ideas, but you know, you gotta have the methods to to make it happen. So, I will say, when I started this project, the 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 one thing I was really committed to was the kind of place based ethnographic methodology, because I was fairly convinced that a lot of different urban spaces would be so layered and rich that if I just spent enough time there, I could come away with more than I could ever wrap my head around and learn a ton. So there, there, you know, there were moments when I was originally proposing this where advisors and peers were like, I'm not sure what you're committed to other than place-based ethnography. And I was like, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, this is my method. This is the thing I'm starting with. So um, the methods are super important. Uh, I will say, you know, with that method in mind, I, I've already spoken a little bit about, about how I picked this space, having had some familiarity with it. Um, but, you know, it partly was appealing for this project because there was a lot of this history and, you know, looming questions of kind of development and the future of the neighborhood. So I, I went there and I tried out a bunch of different methods. I sort of started with a ton of observation. Um my students think it sounds creepy, but I was like, you know, you just go to public spaces and you sit in the park for several hours. You make notes about what you see. Uh, you, you know, so I spent a lot of time, you know, sitting on stoops, hanging out in the park. I did this thing where I tried to observe uh, different times and seasons throughout the course of a year uh, at every time of day. Uh, to try and get a sense for like the schedule of the neighborhood. So like, when do the delivery trucks come to the restaurants? When are people coming back and forth from work? What's happening at two in the morning? You know, like the whole thing. So I worked up uh, a bunch of notes on that. And then um, I also spent a, a lot of time trying to go to different public events. So particularly events organized by the block association or sort of public festivals or things like that. And, um, and then eventually I started to, to get to recognize some people and, and I, I ended up attending like three years worth of block association meetings to the degree where they started to just make fun of me as their perpetual graduate student and they were never totally, you know, there I was like, yeah, he's doing a project on everyday life in the city and we'll see how it turns out. He's been here for a long time. So I think maybe he doesn't know what he's doing, but it's all, all part of the method. And then overlapping that, I kind of figured out different strategic people to do interviews with. So I did a ton of supplementary interviews and, and I actually volunteered for several months at a, a nonprofit uh, at an after school program. Um, and then 
through the course of all that, I managed to find seven people who would let me follow them and sort of embed over the course of their everyday lives. And that ended up becoming the big piece because we did a lot of different things. So like the, all the things people do over the course of their everyday lives, um, you know, going back and forth to work. I joined people at work. We went to the grocery store. We went to the doctor. We walked the dog. We hung out in the park. We sat and watched soap operas in the apartment. I mean, I ended up with transcripts that had like hours of soap opera dialogue that I was like trying to figure out how to work into the book. Um, And I did all that stuff with a a tape recorder sort of strapped around my neck so that I had an audio record of all the stuff, no matter how mundane. So I ended up with, you know, uh, a ton of field notes and and hours of recording and and just sort of uh, a lot of stuff material to to sift through and all that material ended up being really good for getting at uh these questions around common sensibilities and sort of the connection or disconnect between what people say and what people do and sort of thought and action and all this i think ethnography is particularly suited for getting at that stuff. In my classes, I often like get really enthusiastic about ethnography and I'm a big cheerleader for it because I feel like it can get at stuff that uh, other methods have a tough time with. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I'm sure our listeners who are maybe, you know, trying to operationalize their projects will benefit a lot from hearing this. And I really love hearing about your place-based approach, but approach, but it also sounds like a temporal approach. I love hearing about how you, you know, follow the course of, you know, different, you know, days, times, and so yeah. on. Yeah, there was a real like, there was a moment where I was like, this is rhythm analysis. Mm-hmm. This is all, you know, all about the temporalities of, of everyday life. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's right on. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you mentioned how you followed um, some of the residents throughout their Um, everyday lives and I want to ask you a little bit more about that so Mm -hmm. you know even in the book you know there are a lot of you know visual material photographs your very like intimate descriptions of moving through the days with some of these people in their domestic spaces and public spaces so this made me curious about the role of intimacy in your methodology how was the process of building and maintaining these intimacies? Yeah, I love the way that you have phrased this. So <laughs> I feel like intimacy is a really good way to put it. And it's frankly not something that I thought a great deal about when I started the work. I think I was just really excited to sort of get at everyday life and understand all this stuff. And then obviously as time went on, the, the intimacy, intimacy part became uh, you know pretty front and center in, in a lot of this thinking. So I mean, first I have to say, I think that the city and really the sort of time and place that this happened um, did me a lot of favors in terms of being able to develop and maintain the kind of relationships that I had. So I do not think I could get that level of access now, um, partly because of the way that sort of politics and levels of trust have shifted, let alone the COVID protocols. I mean, the thought of like sitting in people's apartments and, and watching soap operas now is, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different game. So I, I think a lot of things have, have changed pretty drastically since then. So, so part of it is like, you know, a, a product of that space and time. But at that point, 
uh, I would say, you know, the, the thickness of life in New York and the sort of thickness of social contact uh, and I don't think New York is unusual among big cities in this way, but you actually are pretty intimate with a lot of strangers throughout the course of your everyday life, whether you're like crammed in someone's armpit on the subway or, you know, like in a throng of people on the sidewalk or you go to a restaurant and you're like rubbing it, literally rubbing, rubbing elbows with people. So like, I do think there was already a degree of comfort with intimacy built into the level of contact and sort of propinquity in a city like that. Um, so to some degree I could just show up in some of the spaces where that contact was already happening, make introductions and sort of, um, allow people to become familiar with me. And I, I spent enough time doing that, that I think people just kind of got used to my being around and got more comfortable with me. And I'm, I'm certain too, that my own identity played a role in that. So, um, you know, I think being a white middle class sort of almost naively friendly uh, hetero cis, but not like too hetero cis man, you know, uh, probably helped me out in that way. Uh, and eventually I was able to sort of uh, get to know a lot of different kinds of people. But I also say like in terms of the everyday life part, it really varied by participant. So there were people like Wadi who, you know, pretty much right away was ready to to spend uh, a lot of time with me over a long period of time. And he had no concerns about letting me tag along for pretty much anything he might be doing. And he'd call and say, hey, I'm going to the doctor. Uh, I'm going to get some computer lessons at the Apple store. You know, might that be of interest to you? And uh, and, and there we would go. And he eventually started to think the book was, was about him uh, and introduced me as his biographer. Uh, which, you know, in some ways he turned out to be right. It would have been a much different book without him. Um, but so there were like, there were a few people who were like, yeah, my life is interesting. Let's do this. Uh, you know, I can totally see why you would want to spend time with me. But you know, then there were other people who um, were a lot more reluctant, either because they were busy or because they were rightly reasonably suspicious of this stranger who was coming and asking questions. I had one participant named Carmen who would only let me come and talk to her in a space that she was familiar with when there were other people who were her friends around. Um, there were other people who I could only sort of contact or, or spend time with, uh, in pretty constrained settings. So like a lot of things around work where it was harder to get a sense for, for what their everyday lives were like. Um, and there were some people who I spent a lot of time with for a short amount of time and then they moved away and, uh, I, I didn't have much contact with them after that. So. Um, I would say a lot, a lot of these were person by person negotiations. And I, I, in some cases, I really felt like I was pestering people uh, to try and maintain that. And in other cases, I almost had the opposite problem where I ended up uh, feeling like I was sort of a person for people to spend time with and talk to, you know, oh, what am I going to do today? I wonder if Christian's around to hang out. Give him a call. We'll go, go shopping. Yeah, that's, that's great, though, that you know, you made people comfortable with doing that. Um, so that's very helpful to hear. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Wadi quite a bit, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Bob, who's, um, I don't know, in my view, like a very um, interesting collaborator that you had. And early in the book, 
you share how he really compelled you to focus on the big picture in his words, uh, something that he felt like he couldn't get to do in his day-to-day as an urban activist. And this instance really struck with me because I think he's really urging not just you, but a lot of us as researchers to articulate our roles in continuous dialogue with community members we work with. So I'm wondering how his provocations on, you know, how you should go about this research impacted your approach and how did you position yourself within their activism and everyday practices, especially, you know, as someone invited to think about the big picture? Yeah, this is uh, another great question. And, you know, that <laughs> that instance and, and Bob's uh, provocation obviously really stuck with me too, which is why it, it shows up right at the beginning in the framing of the book in the way that it does. And so, you know, just to say a little bit more about Bob, uh, he was uh, a tenant organizer, a, a housing organizer at this uh, organization called um, Housing Conservation Coordinators, uh, an organization that Wadi was actually on the board of directors for. Um, but he spent a lot of time, you know, doing, uh, I think he's, he started in the seventies. So he had decades of experience, um, you know, doing tenant organizing at a very fine grain scale. So he knew that neighborhood block by block. He knew stories about what happened in those buildings. And, you know, 20 years ago, there was a person who was the head of the co-op board here and they ousted him, and we turned it into limited equity co-op, you know, almost like at a unit by unit level. He knew that neighborhood uh, and he had 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 worked to try and organize against displacement and, and, and to set up sort of durable structures uh, uh, for 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 different kinds of tenant rights um, and different kinds of housing uh, options. So, you know, he provoked me by saying, uh, essentially, tell me something that I don't know from an angle that I haven't thought about. And he was very clear that he had spent time, you know, he considered himself, what did he say? I, I consider myself a communist, but I've ended up on these panels with academic Marxists who, you know, only have one story. Okay. I know that story. And it is the story of how powerful capitalism is and, and, you know, how gentrification is a freight train that's going to crush everything in its way. That's not very helpful for me as an organizer. Nor is the story about how gentrification is, you know, the sort of liberal story about how gentrification is a force of nature, uh, you know, like a market set of improvements that are, are going to lift all boats. Tell me a story that's not either of those two stories, and that might actually be helpful in my organizing. Uh, and tell me a story that has a perspective that I couldn't get in my own day-to-day blur. So that was a, a kind of a gut check moment for me. Because uh, I think at that point in the research, I was drawing a lot conceptually on a lot of urban theories that sort of repeated one or another of those framings and tended to think about urbanism at scales and in terms of processes that um, really sort of dwarfed and squished the kind of level that that Bob was was operating on and, and honestly, like having a lot of success and impact uh, at that level. So um, that really pushed me. To, to think about a lot of the questions that I ended up thinking about and, and frame things the way that I did. 
at the same time, you know, I appreciate your your question about the uh, the component of this that's about activism too, because I don't think that a lot of the participants would have self identified as uh, uh, an activist necessarily. So, like Wadi, maybe, but um, you know, he tended to think of himself as like a citizen, and a lot of the the people tended to think of themselves as uh, kind of people who were acting and and going with the flow of being good citizens rather than people who were shaping the flow, if that makes sense. So I, I think, um, you know, people tended to imagine themselves a lot in terms of the kind of Jane Jacobs language around citizenship or eyes on the street. Um, and so part of the unsettling impulse for the book also came from kind of trying to talk to people about the the way that their activities fit into these bigger forces that were going on in the neighborhood and realizing that they themselves had these kind of naturalized stories about uh, how powerful all these forces were and didn't necessarily see their own actions as lining up with those things. So there, you know, that was a tricky thing to navigate. I, I shared a copy of the manuscript with a colleague at one point. And uh, he was somebody who's in like a classics department who thinks a lot about the structure of like uh, different Greek story types. And he was like, you know, uh, at some moments, it seems like you are like the diligent reporter and you are trying to just do, you know, maintain fidelity to the story of telling the facts. But then at other points, it's like you are the person who's like, commenting and intervening and trying to gently pull like a Socratic method kind of thing with these people. So, so which is it? And I was like, yeah, it's a good point. I don't know that I ever managed to totally uh, strike that balance or land on, on either one of those sides. So um, I'd say at a minimum, I tried not to let them like instrumentalize what I was doing. Cause there were moments where they were like, something happened out on the street last night. And I'm pretty sure you have notes that, uh, you know, tell us who started the fight in the parking lot of the nightclub or whatever. And I was, I had to be like, I'm, I'm putting my hands up for your listeners. They, they can't see that. Uh, I had to be like, yeah, no, I, I don't have information on that. I, I can't intervene in that particular debate or like identify people to sick the police on. Uh. Well, sounds very much like ethnography without guarantees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you have had those experiences as well. <laughs> Definitely. Haven't we all? Um, before we wrap up, Christian, I'd like to ask you, what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, or even classes, teaching are you working on currently? Yeah, I like it. Uh <laughs> That, that's always the, the almost a scarier question too, right? Because for this project now, I know a little bit how to talk about it. For the future, it's always like, oh yeah, what am I doing right now in this, this blur of everyday life? So uh, I moved away from New York in 2012 and now I live in Seattle, which uh, is its own interesting kind of place with a lot of different kinds of stuff going on. So I think I'm just like sort of following my way, which is to land in a place and be like, wait, what the heck is going on here? Uh, so a lot of the, the stuff I'm working on now is sort of place-based research related to um, what's happening in Seattle, particularly around kind of um, some people here call it Amazonification, which is like a particular kind of like, um, you know, Amazon, 
has its headquarters here and it, it uh, has redeveloped entire neighborhoods to be its sort of urban campus headquarters. And that's had ripple effects through the whole region in terms of housing and, and transit and infrastructure and, and, and really the culture and the sort of dominant forms of common sense about the identity of the city, the, the history and the future of the city. So uh, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, sort of people who are community-based, who are place-based activists, artists, storytellers, um, thinking about doing stuff like oral history, archival work, public curation um, that sort of pushes back on some of the dominant narratives, tries to preserve some of the history uh, and sort of curate different ways of thinking about the sort of diverse histories of the place that don't show up in some of these dominant narratives. So one project that I'm working on is this sort of convening called the people's geography of Seattle that tries to bring together different people to think about that. And um, there's another project that's kind of a sub aspect of that. That's called the, the Seattle black history, black spatial histories Institute. Um, and that's being spearheaded by this really awesome organization called Wanawari that's located in the sort of historically black uh, central district of Seattle. And they're doing a lot of really awesome place-based oral histories, just um, sort of training community researchers to go out and do community-based story gathering to sort of reframe the popular understandings uh, and and really make claims on the value of different historical experiences in spaces uh, that are now uh, being being gentrified. So uh, kind of pushing back on dominant discourses and perceptions of, of Black and other BIPOC uh, people and spaces in the city. So that's, that's a big part of it. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, there's a lot of stuff around climate right now as well. So I'd say like the, the long-term future pro- project is going to probably try to apply some of these lenses we've been talking about to thinking about um, everyday forms of, um, engagement with or participation in, in, in different climate futures, uh, in urban space, but we'll see what that looks like. That's, that's just coming off a summer of heat waves and, and wildfire smoke thinking. Very fair. Yeah. That's probably the future. Yeah. Well, these all sound really fascinating and we'll be looking forward to these works. So thank you very much, Christian, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and, and also thanks to your listeners. I feel like if, if you made it uh, all the way to the end here, I, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> and uh, anybody get in touch if you heard anything you want to talk more about. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it's been my pleasure. And I'm sure it's been a pleasure for our listeners as well. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan. This discussion of urbanism without guarantees, the everyday life of a gentrifying West Side neighborhood, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.